My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. I wish I could say that my obsession with Stefan Zweig, who is arguably one of the finest and most fascinating writers of the early 20th century, began when I was a child. I wish I could tell you that some English teacher tore me away from the toolbox that I had to make in my sophomore metal shop class and said, Hey there, Ed! There's this amazing writer named Stefan Zweig who was obsessed with romance, melodrama, virtues of European culture, class, suicide. You should put everything aside and read him now. He will rock your world. Of course, none of this happened. The only reason I'm familiar with Stefan Zweig is because of serendipity and pure laziness on my part. You see, one day, I was sitting on my stoop, and as it so happens, a vivacious representative from NYRB Classics happened to be walking by, and I mentioned, ever so casually and quite facetiously, that perhaps someone from that fine publisher may want to send me a few books written by Zweig. What I did not count on was that NYRB Classics would deliver this thick Zweig package only two days later. What I did not anticipate was spending some of my hard-earned dough on the other Zweig books published by Pushkin Press. You see, when you first read Stefan Zweig, you find yourself embracing this overwhelming desire to read everything that the man has ever written. He really is that good, and he really is that addictive. His fiction is laden with romance, honor, this extraordinary intensity, this tendency to tell stories within stories. If you're new to Zweig, I would suggest starting with Chess Story first, followed by the other slim and affordable volumes that are published by NYRB Classics, followed by this amazingly robust and complete and unforgettable Pushkin Press volume with an orange cover called The Collected Stories of Stefan Zweig, which is nothing less than a phenomenal collection that will send you into this reading tizzy. But if you're still unconvinced, Consider the wise words of translator Anthea Bell. Yes, hi, Anthea. The Batsuguda Show happened to track down the primary translator of Stefan Zweig, and it turns out that Bell has spent a great deal of her time thinking about Zweig's longevity. Both James Joyce and Stefan Zweig were exiles when they met in Zurich, and they got along so well that Joyce lent him his only copy of Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, and Joyce famously said to Zweig, I would like a language above other languages, a language serving them all. I can't express myself completely in English without making myself part of a certain tradition. And I'm wondering, since you've spent a lot of time looking at Zweig's language, do you think Zweig suffered from the same problem that is different as Joyce and Zweig were? that they were both confronted in their own ways by belonging to a kind of tradition that language enslaved them to some degree. Um, yes, I think you're right there. And Zweig was himself, early in his life, he did quite a lot of translation. Yes. And he recommended it as a way for a writer to get better acquainted with his own language, which I find very interesting. <laughs> what, what is it about his language? I mean, I've read your translations... I've read the translations of uh, various others, such as Phyllis and Trevor Blowett, uh, Joel Rotenberg, and all that, and yet the romantic feel and the class 
and the despair of Zweig's stories still manages to come out in, in much the same way. What is it about Zweig's German that creates these parallels, and, and, and what do you do to find your own spin as a translator? Um, he was very, very scrupulous about his use of language, and as you probably know, he cut a great deal of everything he ever wrote. And that is one reason, I'm sure, why he wrote so many novellas, and some of them could easily have developed into full-length novels and probably would have done in the hands of many another writer. But he cut and cut and cut, except with Beware of Pity. But he cut so many of the others, he didn't let them out of his hands until he'd cut everything he felt he could and still get what he was saying across. He didn't want to say too much. And that is, I think, what gives the, the irony in his fiction and makes it so compelling. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, I'm wondering, first and foremost, how you came to Zweig and what the first story that you translated of his was. Uh, it seems to me that you've developed a great intimacy with his life, and that's part and parcel with accurately conveying his stories in English. Um, well, the first one that Pushkin Press asked me to translate was the one that is called confusion in English. Oh, yes. The German means confusion of feelings, but it's just confusion in English. And after that, um, the uh, the very uh, telling uh, 24 hours in the life of a woman, Yes. which I think is a remarkable piece of female impersonation. He's, I think it's a masterpiece, that story. He, he's, he's very good at getting inside women. How did you first discover him, and, and what compelled you to carry on translating him? Well, I had read him, oh, earlier in the past, but it was when I got to being asked to translate him, you get a completely, not a completely different angle, but a much deeper view of a writer when you begin translating him. Um, there's a uh, an American scholar whom I've got on my bookshelves. Um, I'm just getting up to look at uh, the title of it. Anyway, um, he writes that the uh, translating is a particularly intensive form of reading, and I think he is quite right there. And you do, you get to know something far better as you translate it. Now, when I had read, I don't know how Swag strikes you reading him, but he looks as if he would be easy to translate, because it all flows along very lucidly, but he is difficult, as a matter of fact, much more difficult than you might think. What steps do you do to break down his stories? I mean, very often you see these intriguing narrative structures that begin his stories. I think of, uh, I think of, of course, Beware of Pity. I think of Letter from an Unknown Woman. <laughs> I think of 24 Hours uh, as well. This notion that uh, you have some person talking about something else, who then talks about something else, who then goes into the past and then possibly uh, creates a letter or sits in a room discussing a story... Uh, this is an extraordinary tricky thing that Zweig does, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, what 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 does this mean for you as a translator from a language standpoint? I mean, you 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 mentioned earlier that Zweig took great care with his German. Uh, what care do you have to take on top of that to ensure that that meticulous narrative grabs the reader in the same way that it does in the German? Well, a translator is always trying to get inside the head of an author, and of course, 
it's very helpful if your author is alive and you can ask him or her questions. But um, if your author is dead, oh, his favourite adjective, whenever I come across it, is dumpf, D-U-M-P-F. And that means dark or ah. hollow of a sound. Or, but usually he, mean, he uses it to mean somber in some way, either literally or metaphorically. And whenever I get to that adjective, I think, oh, come on, Stefan, which sort of dumps have we got this time? <laughs> it's, uh, he is, um, there are layers in that writing. And by all his cutting, I feel he has kind of smoothed them together, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Find so you're saying there's there's almost this false cognate situation when you translate Zweig. Yes, yes. He he is a very very interesting writer to translate, and um, obviously I, I enjoy translation. But obviously also only when I'm translating somebody who I feel is writing well. Yeah. Well, how do you you you've translated so much of Zweig? How do you prevent Zweig burnout? <laughs> well, I think now Pushkin Press. We have competed for yeah. his fiction, most of it novellas, um, but the one novel, and I didn't translate The Post Office Girl, but that, um, that is possibly another novel. On the other hand, it was found in his literary estate after his death, and we have no way of knowing that he might not have cut and cut away at that. But really? Beware, beware of pity, he certainly let out of his hands as a complete novel, and he must have sent it to the Blewitts, the married couple who were translating him at the time. He must have sent it to them, I work out, in chunks in the year 1938, because when it came to editing it, the copy editor at Pushkin Press said to me here and there, oh, this is not the similar that he uses in the Blewitts translation. And I said, no, sorry, I have got the standard German version in front of me, and I think he must have sent the Blewitts his translation as he went along, and then probably didn't have time to send them any changes he made. Wow! We so wait, that out in the copy editing stage. It was very interesting. So wait, wait, wait. Go, I want to hear this situation with the post office girl, which is a devastating tale of fatalism that sort of turns into an unanticipated uh, murder mystery to some degree <laughs> near the end. Oh yes, uh, well, I, I actually, um, in New York Review Press. Yes, they did their translation, but uh, but you said that there was some issue with uh, you. I mean, why didn't you translate that? I, I wanted to um, kind of well, clarify. Well, it was that. actually because at the time. They wanted me to let them have rights to some of my other translations. Oh, okay, and it wasn't okay. for me to give them rights, it was for Pushkin Press. I, I have the copyright in the English version, but nonetheless, I felt it was for Pushkin Press. And so there was a little disagreement over that, but all is uh, smoothed over now. And New York uh, Review Press has uh, done in the United States some of the later side novellas I translated. How, how do you, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, anyone who is a Zweig fan really wants all Zweig to be out there, and uh, we seem to, I think, be in perhaps the strongest wave of Zweig reinterest, what with Pushkin Press and also the NYRB Classics editions. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you, I mean, what have you had to do to coordinate to ensure that your translations get out there uh, and, and that they're actually uh, being coordinated with other translators and other editions? I mean, is, are, are you part of any kind of mass coordination? I'm trying to actually see what is responsible for this uh, wonderful 
uh, Zweig Renaissance? Um, well, I, uh, if I am asked specifically to translate for both sides of the Atlantic at once, I, I do it as well as I can. But in this case, I think uh, I, I have some of the American versions here. I haven't looked to see if they've changed the spelling. But it's it's not as if some people say we are... Uh, two people divided by a common language. I feel find there is no difficulty in reading American English, and I don't know anybody, any of my friends in the States who find British English particularly off-putting. But, uh, it, it, sorry, you were going to say? Oh, no, no, go, go for it. <laughs> it's um, sometimes, I mean, I translated, it, it came out last year, a book by a modern author, Eugen Ruger, who wrote... Um, a family saga based in East Germany, and that was published by an American publisher, Grey Wolf, and um, Faber in this country used the exact same wording. So there's not an insuperable difficulty there. Yeah, I wanted also to talk with you about one of the strangest qualities about Zweig. I, even his most perfervid advocates find something about his work to quibble with. I was at this uh, McNally Jackson Zweig panel here in New York, and one panelist took issue with the world of yesterday and the way that Zweig didn't ostensibly talk about his sex life. Another took issue with the biographies, saying that they were essentially fiction. And, and it's it's really interesting. Why do you think that there's this reluctance to revere Zweig? Is it possible that his style, which is so accessible, attracts suspicion in some sense? Or? Yes, I, I think it has attracted suspicion. And people think that as somebody who was so popular in his time, there may not be anything in him. But then, of course, it, it is quite a common phenomenon, isn't it? And you get it in music as well, that just after someone's death, he ceases to be popular. Uh, that happened with Rafe Vaughan Williams, but Rafe Vaughan Williams musically is right back in fashion again now. Yeah. And um, the one country that never dropped strike was France. Yes. They, they went on and on translating him into French, and he went on being very widely read there. And as you will gather from the world of yesterday in particular, he absolutely loved France. Yes. Well, I, the London Review of Books published one of the strangest essays I've read on Zweig, uh, this vituperative piece by Michael Hoffman that called Stefan Zweig the Pepsi of Austrian writing. Oh, no, yes. and, uh, he, he said the photo of uh, Zweig and Latte made Ouija look tame, which is extraordinary. Uh, I, I had a conversation the other night with a friend who refused to consider Zweig because she was holding up Arthur Schinsler and he could not be topped. There are others who have held up Thomas Mann, uh, Joseph Roth, Robert Musil, as reasons not to consider Zweig. I mean, we were discussing just now that people are suspicious of his popularity, but why be so hostile to a writer who gets through to people? I mean, what what is the basis of some of this extraordinary and, and in many ways eccentric hostility? Yes, I know what you mean exactly, but, uh, well, everybody's free to his own opinion, but uh, I, <laughs> I, I find... Um, the, I don't think that readability is a point to hold against a writer, frankly. I think uh, if he wants to appeal, and he, it's not as if he didn't work hard. As I say, he put his mind into cutting very much indeed. It's interesting what you say about the biographies, because um, there is a certain lushness to them. 
which isn't common in a modern style of biography. And on the whole, Pushkin Press are reissuing the older translations of them. But I did do a translation of, it's called Shooting Stars in English. It is a kind of fictionalized biography of notable figures. And so Pushkin Press were trying this. It uh, ranged from um, uh, the composer Handel, um, Scott getting to the Antarctic, but just behind Amundsen. So it covered uh, quite, it had the Californian gold rush. He didn't bother much about sticking to historical fact in those sketches, but uh, it was the most popular book in its time that he ever wrote. Yeah. I, I know that many translators have this tendency to drop large chunks of text. It's one of the aspects of translated literature that people don't often bring up. Uh, with Zweig, I'm wondering whether it be words or phrases or sentences, what is the most you've ever had to elide from the finished manuscript, out of curiosity? Um, that is a very interesting question. And I would have, sometimes, I have elided, that's a good word for it, merging his thoughts together in yeah. a sentence. It is legitimate. But not a lot. Um, I am... Possibly quite a few. I don't know how free a translator I am. I'm always trying to stick to what the author is saying. But sometimes there is no way of saying it in English without being free here and there. You yeah. have to stay true to the spirit of a work if, if uh, there's a choice between the spirit and the letter. You're more of, I suppose, a maximalist you want, or a preservationist, I suppose. Someone who wants to preserve as much of the text as possible, uh, because if you, do, if you drop it, it's going to drop the spirit. Yes, I, I do agree, yes. Uh, the, the spirit has to be preserved above all. And certainly, it's a very interesting thing to me that Zweig, he does not do happy endings. He absolutely does not. And yet, buried in um, the well of pity... Um, which um, is not called that in German, actually, but um, in The Wear of Pity, which has the most tragic imaginable ending with that poor girl, yeah. erotic, but she is not stupid, and we get to feel very, very sorry for her, as well as for him. Yeah. Um, buried in that long novel, there is the equivalent of a novella with a happy ending the girl's father's courtship of her mother. He sets out to cheat her mother out of every penny she has inherited, and in the end he falls in love and they get married. This is a most yeah. unusual thing. For, it, it's 40 pages of the German. It's a novella length in itself. And there is a shorter story about the narrator's acquaintance with another, with a former soldier who was dismissed from the regiment for some shameful reason, we never know why, but has got his way back uh, into good company by marrying a rich wife. And the tale of that man's courtship of his rich wife is also a story with a happy ending. And otherwise, Slide never does them. I think he must have felt that the message of the wear of pity, um, the German, by the way, means impatience of the heart. It's quite different. Yes. But Beware of Pity is so tragic that I almost feel as if he felt his reader needed some relief somewhere. Yeah, or perhaps in exploring pity and its close association with romance, he could not help 
but be romantic in some sense yes, during I, that I midsection. Think that's what they call the period. Very good point there. Yes. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, at near the end of his life, he's riding the world of yesterday, and he's still uh, finding something positive, and, and we know many decades later that he's going to commit suicide. So it's really extraordinary that as well. And um, the world of yesterday, now he is the least autobiographical writer in his fiction that one can imagine. And yet the situations in the world of yesterday, there's a whole chapter about the ridiculous nature of bringing up in polite Viennese society young men to sow their wild oats while girls were supposed to be utterly innocent of the facts of life. And that situation comes out in quite a short story. It's called The Governess, in which the two girls who are taught by the governess, they're 13 and 12, and they wonder how the governess can come to have a baby, because only married people have babies. They just do not know the facts of life. It, It would be criminal not to tell girls the facts of life these days. But it is echoes the situation he described outside his fiction in his memoir. There's one uh, story I want to bring up with you, uh, Amok. It's a tricky story because of the condescending attitudes that are expressed towards the Malaysians. There's the moment where the doctor is suggesting that that when civilized Europeans uh, are cut off from their cities, they succumb to these weaknesses and this lassitude and so forth. As a translator... How do you deal with language that enters into this discomforting post-colonial zone? Are there aspects of Zweig that you or editors feel compelled to soften in any way? No, or I don't do think just... one can soften it. I know it's that it's a mock, which I think, now in the hands of another writer, that could have been almost like Joseph Conrad with its yeah. exotic Far Eastern background. Um, and it could have had, you know, echoes like Heart of Darkness, something of that nature. It's a very, uh, an enormously full story. Uh, even more than the attitudes of the Malays, I think of that first one, Confusion, which is a wonderful story, but I can see him operating a double standard of his time. The professor of English literature, who is homosexual and suffers torments because of it, he is regarded as admirable. But the down-market rent boys whom he occasionally visits, um, the author is um, pouring scorn on them, really. And I feel uneasy about that. Do you think that many of these interesting ideological incoherences within many Zweig stories, and often within the same story, is this what keeps you as a translator surprised? Because even though you are familiar with the source text, you are still going to come up with endless kinds of uh, involutions like this. One one does, of course, and now this one was not going to bother Zweig, nor his great friend Josef Vogt, Um, but anti-Semitism was quite rife in English writing at the time. I mean, G.K. Chesterton, a wonderful writer, but was yeah. terribly anti-Semitic. I know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop me enjoying G.K. Chesterton, but still. Yeah, but it does cause one pause in, in our seemingly enlightened age. Um, I, I know that you have a translation ban on science and poetry, but I'm, I'm wondering why not make an exception for Zweig's poetry? I mean, you are uh, one of the foremost Zweig people. I, I'm wondering if you were ever tempted to uh, uh, cross that self-imposed prohibition. Um, the, um, as a matter of fact, 
said, I don't translate serious poetry, full stop. I don't think I can do it. I can do light verse, I can do comic verse, I can do bad on purpose verse. There is a book by the wonderful early 19th century writer E.T.A. Hoffman, which is allegedly told by a cat, or half of it is told by a cat, who thinks he is a wonderful writer. And of course his verses are simply terrible, and I can translate that sort of thing. But serious poetry I leave to other people. There was, about three years ago, we had a side event in London for Jewish Book Week, and I translated some of Tsai's letters to Max Brot when sometimes he is accused of not thinking enough about the Jewish people when the Second World War was approaching. But his correspondence with Max Brot, who of course was Kafka's great friend and disobeyed Kafka's wish to have his unfinished works destroyed when he died, but they were trying to set up a manifesto to send around to other countries. And at the same time, I translated passages from one of Tribe's verse plays about um, the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I found that interesting, and Henry Goodman, the actor, performed the whole thing wonderfully, including the stage directions. That play was put on in Zurich in Switzerland in 1917. And Tribe was able to get out of uh, Austria at the time of the Great War. He was a pacifist, of course. Yeah. Uh, he had been uh, working in the state archives during the Great War. But he went to Switzerland for the performance of his play. And scenery he calls for and elephants and camels. and No, not elephants, camels, I think. Other beasts of Berman. I bet they couldn't manage it in the Zurich Theatre in 1917. But Henry Goodman performed it very well. But it reminded me of plays in verse in English of that time. And I prefer his prose style. And certainly he, he wrote an awful lot, a, a wide range of poetry, drama, biography, and the fiction. Well, Anthea, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out, and thank you for all the marvelous Zweig translations which have uh, kept me uh, feverish for the past several weeks. That's kind of you to say so. From Anthea Bell, we shift to George Prochnik, author of The Impossible Exile. Prochnik spent many years demystifying the peripatetic Zweig, who was always on the run, given that he was a popular Jewish writer, also contending with the Holocaust. What Prochnik gets at so well, as you will hear during the subsequent conversation, is the way in which Zweig's mysteries still nod us many decades later. Okay, so I am here with George Prochnik, who is most recently the author of The Impossible Exile. George, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. So it's uh, great to talk with you because I have to confess that I've been on a Zweig bender of late and I have read uh, quite a number of those volumes and uh, I hope you'll forgive me if we really get in down in the nitty-gritty about good old Stefan. But uh, let's go ahead and start with his very unusual political relationship. Uh, he was acutely aware of class trappings. We see this in the post office girl. But he seemed to believe that the high culture or the good life could in fact be used to combat forces as nefarious as National Socialism. Uh, as you point out, he believed this as late as 1935, and uh, this led him 
uh, to be mocked later by Hannah Arendt in uh, her brutal review of the world of yesterday. You point to Zweig's alliance with Richard Strauss, which backs up this tendency, uh, and certainly much of this grew out of Zweig's involvement with the Viennese secessionists, but how do you feel this approach developed over time? How did exile contribute to this undoing? Was this kind of a political incoherence part of it? Um, that's, I, th- I think, I think it's, it's wonderful what you're asking, and it wraps together a number of different characteristics of, of him, I think, I- intrinsic psychological characteristics and also acquired traits, yeah. as it were. I, I mean, Zweig, Zweig says explicitly in his memoir when he describes the option that he had at the start of the war to have refused service in a bold gesture. He said, I don't mind saying right out that there's nothing heroic about me and I will evade wherever possible. So on the one hand, he was already also had made the decision that he wasn't going to somehow or other, he was he was not going to end up on the battlefield. Yeah. But he knew that that the grand the grand ref, the grand ref, refusal was also beyond him. So part of Zweig's um, difficulties particularly in uh, over time when the Nazis when the ascendancy of, of, of Hitler and of all of the values with which he was associated with became an intractable and an unavoid, unavoidable problem was that he'd already Zweig had already adopted a stance which was not a stance however of pure cowardice he had a very um, a very developed conviction that served his interests and also I think, Spoke to spoke to real um, a real belief a real belief of his that it was impossible ultimately to obtain a just more tolerant world through violence. In other words, even if you were faced with 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 a horrific form of government set of ideological beliefs, what he always tried to do was to garner support for his pacifist humanist positions through positive achievements. He felt that whether through cultural uh, acts of, 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 of creativity, whether through, whether through the arts or whether through forms of education that were explicitly devoted to promoting tolerance, that by trying to call on people's better instincts, you ultimately got further than through a furious denunciation. Now, the reality is that at the very start of the Second World War, when, uh, or or, uh, in 1939, at least when England declared war on Germany, there was a brief period when he wavered on this and said, I don't understand how any... uh, young Jew of age can, at this point in time, not enlist. And I think at that point, Zweig himself would have enlisted to fight. He, 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 he grasped that Hitler was another problem. But one of the, uh, another order, another order of, of destructive intent. But one of, one, you know, one of, the, one of the aspects of Zweig's story that, that I find um, inexhaustibly interesting is the way that he tried to apply lessons of history 
unsuccessfully. I mean, that he was, it was not that he was denying history, but what he learned, for example, from the First World War yeah. is what madness war is. So then he- We're tra- talking generally, not his biographies, just as his life no, philosophy. No, I mean, as yeah. his li- exactly, as his evolving life philosophy. He, you know, he, he, he had learned very well the utter ruin into which civilization could tumble as a consequence of even- a, even if you had a relatively just aim of setting out with a with a gun to impose that, and that just that just didn't necessarily serve him well in in all instances. I mean, yeah. Auden, who he whose Feig, W. H. Auden, the poet yes. whose Feig came to know in the summer of 1941 in New York, ran into at least. A, 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 a similar problem. I mean, what, there's a line I, I, from Orwell. I think it's something about he. Uh, this is grossly paraphrasing, but you know, he always knew to be where the trigger wasn't being pulled. You know, something yeah. like this. That that because Auden, who had initially been so supportive of the uh, of the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War, had then gone to Spain and seen the humiliation of the clerics yeah. and the destruction of the churches. He he was then very resistant to taking up a, a strong outspoken stance against Hitler at this at the start of the Second World War, for which Klaus Mann, among others, really took him to task. I think what fascinates me about this, and it's there, this, this cognizance of what war can do, especially to Jewish identity, it's there in The Miracles of Life, this amazing novella that he writes when he's only 22, I believe in 1903. Mm. And if he cannot remember the lessons that his apparent subconscious set down in fiction 30 years later, I I mean, what accounts for this almost Woodhousean (laughs) type of obliviousness to war, to anti-Semitism, to uh, being uprooted, to being exiled? I don't think he was at all oblivious. I, 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 you know, and there, there's evidence of that in his letters in particular, but, but here and there as well as in the memoir. And, you know, I, I think one of the, most important passages in the uh, opening section of that work is something that is it, it's so brief that it's easy to overlook but where he's he goes on about the world of, of yesterday yes. and the security in particular and the ways in which everyone in Vienna got along or they only chafed mildly against each other and you know in, in this in this in this fashion that he was then very much um, he was attacked for what seemed a, a, a willful gilding, a nostalgicizing of, of, a, of an ideal, tolerant Vienna that never existed. But in reality, there's this moment where he says, you know, this was a delusion, but it was, it, it, if so, it was a, how much more of a noble and more fruitful delusion it was. It was also his delusion to keep. It was his decision, not only delusion, yeah. but his decision to keep it because he... He was cognizantly myo- myopic. <laughs> Well, because he felt that one thing that that you know whether myopic or or I I I think of it more in terms of this idealization. He felt that even you know he he talks about the need in particularly in his very interesting biography of Erasmus. He talks about the need for world leaders who hold on to these utopian visions of humanity's possibilities, even if those must always remain to an extent a myth. Because he says, if we don't essentially have overreachers in the imagination, we're never going to get anywhere. So he, he uses that term about the delusions of the world of his fathers as 
you know, in, in, in a very pointed way as a fruitful, a fertile delusion, that it leads, at least, he says, relative to the slogans being bandied about when he's writing this in 1941. So that idea, I think, is really interesting about Zweig not as someone who didn't see, but as someone who saw and saw such ugliness and such abomination unfolding around him that it seemed ultimately to have more, if humanity was ever going to dig itself out of that ditch, that perhaps it was necessary to paint these pictures of, 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 of what the world of yesterday had been in, in such glorious language and scenes, some of which are semi-fabricated, that after the blaze had begun to die down of the, conf- of the conflict, there would be signposts, something for humanity to look at as a way of trying to reconstruct a, a, more, a more humane society in the this future. This was his idea of idealism, basically. I think so, that it could actually perform a real-world work. Huh. And that's, that, for me, is, is the critical distinction in terms of thinking about what Zweig did and didn't do. And, and this comes you know, to, to your original question. I don't want to leave it without touching on, on Zweig's real philosophy of yes. silence, which, which was a belief that you... Th- if someone was screaming horrible uh, forms of uh, abuse at you, that you never really defeated them by trying to scream louder. That, in fact, it was by uh, adopting a, a, a stance of, of dignity and of disproving by embodying a different that's a set of values to that, the only way to oppose it. And this was something that got him into such difficulties with, with the Nazis in particular, who... You know, Hitler fetishized the the notion of hardness, and hardness comes up again and again, literally as a as a term in different German, uh, in, with with different sorts of trans, trans, different sorts of German words in in Mein Kampf, but again and again throughout the rhetoric of Goebbels and in Goering and in all of the main ideologues, Rosenberg, they they use this term of hardness to define essentially ethical worth of the human being, and so Zweig, I. Th- I'm certain, saw that you can't oppose hardness with hardness. You know, he felt you oppose hardness with softness, with pliancy, with receptivity, with a set of values which are much more associated stereotypically with feminine values, but with an idea that you, you, you came at that obliquely and, and, and proved yourself able to essentially to be metamorphic in your character as opposed to absolutely rigid and that this was ultimately and it's a it's an idea with a certain Jewish resonance also in Jewish thought Jewish history sure but I would argue that with especially a novel like the post office girl mm-hmm. we see the rigidity reinforced by this woman who goes to a luxurious hotel is confused as upper class and then has to deal with the fact that she can't pass that way and is then forced back into this terrible existence where she has to go ahead and work in this post office. And oddly enough, the last half of that book sort of becomes, especially with that kind of manifesto at the end, I don't want to give it away, uh, a very... deliberate effort to contend with reality and becomes extraordinarily bleak, devastating, and heartbreaking. And it it leads me to wonder, you know, how committed Zweig was to his delusion or whether he needed to have certain kind of historical modes or present times with which to, I guess, oscillate between the delusion he deliberately courted and the realism he seemed to be aware of with that manifesto at the end of the post office mm-hmm. girl. 
Well, that's that's interesting, and I, I like very much how you're how you're approaching what that book is. I I think the remarkable thing about what he achieves in that book is without saying in so many words that this is what's happening. He's giving one of the best explanations we have for how um, people in Germany and Austria might have adopted these fanatical positions. By you know, you you pointed to that seen early on in definitive, the definitive moment in that book of setting events in motion for yeah. the girl herself, at least, when she has a taste of the high life, a taste of how good life can be for those who have money. Really simple. You know, there was such intense intrawar poverty in, in, in Austria, um, and people don't look at that enough. And that, in fact, is, I'm sure you know, is one thing that Zweig was accused of, of, of neglecting. But we see how her mean circumstances from this provincial place... And not even her fault, because her family actually had a bad rap, and then she got she fell into this sort of uh, rote, impoverished kind of existence. It, it not at her fault at all. Yeah. But then she then she then she gets just a hint by visiting this aunt in a glamorous spa yeah. hotel of how wonderful life can be, and then she's flung back through a series of unfortunate events into into the mire of her of of her previous existence, and that just. That gnawing sense of exclusion is something that I think is critical for understanding what the Nazis fed on. And I will give you just one example that lingers in my mind so much. There's an amazing, there's an amazing account by an English uh, journalist who, for a while, was accompanying Hitler uh, right at the time of the Anschluss, and he describes being with um, being with Hitler at the moment that. Hitler comes to the Hotel Imperial in Vienna, which is right next to the Opera House almost, and a place attached to a cafe, the Cafe Imperial, that was a, a central meeting place for the Viennese intellectuals and a place that Zweig himself spent a great deal of time in. And, and this journalist recounts Hitler's remembrance before this hotel of how when he was a young, impoverished really almost on the edge of being a tramp in, yes. in Vienna, how he had to shove, he sometimes picked up just random work, shoveling snow out front of the Hotel Imperial and these cars that would, these grand cars that would pull up and these glamorous people who would exit and pass through those doors. And you, and, and then, you know, Hitler talks about what it means for him now to pass into that space. And in fact, he turned this hotel into a headquarters for the, Nazis in Austria throughout the war. And the, the, that kind of getting your own back, that sort of bitter sense of, of, of what this grand, ostensibly liberal, bourgeois society, what it didn't manage to embrace in its heyday, and the, the profound resentment, which is captured so poignantly in um, The Post Office Girl. And not just that, but also this astonishing invasion of privacy where the guards are knocking down and banging on the doors to find out, you know, how many, how, what illicit fornication is going on and all that and demanding people's papers. And only the, uh, only the sort of provenance of military papers gets, gets, gets her out of that situation. And that, that is, that is, I mean, more than, more than even that, I think he ties it in with privacy so well, so well to sort of show, uh, what the what the problems of, of being in that interstitial liminal space is really well put and 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 as you know we can never overstate 
the sense Zweig had of the degradation of the human consequent on dependency on these sorts of documents, yeah. you know, which really kicks in at some point in the First World War. And I believe this is 1927 that he wrote this? And this is yeah, later. Just, just to be this clear. is later. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, if if it was twenty, if if not even slightly later, I don't recall, but it could be twenty seven. Yeah, I, I know um, it's really. He fairly picked early. it up and yeah. put it down yeah. A, yeah. a few times. I think maybe he puts it down for the last time, right as he goes into exile. Ah, okay. Um, but I don't remember. I don't recall. It could have been twenty seven that he started it. But in but it, but without question, he's looking directly at the issues of privacy and privacy for for Zweig. You know, it 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 always is in his thoughts that when we don't have privacy in our in our actions and our mobility, as either the mobility of our mobility within geographical space or mobility in terms of the persona that we want to adopt in a particular circumstance, it is always reducing our inner life. This is something he, I think, was enormously pressing about, and something that you know today, when people again have these concerns of surveillance and bureaucratization, even though the circumstances are very different, some of the sense of angst that accompanies that growing. The pervasive ways in which we are observed and need to present certain kinds of documents to conduct our lives is is something that he really, in a deep, visceral way, saw and feared uh, already by the end of the First World War. Certainly. Uh, you quote Heinrich Mann early in the book, the vanquished are the first to learn what history holds in store. Zweig's notion of torture and despair aren't merely rooted in a halcyon history of what went before, uh, we see in the second half of Chess Story uh, and in his personal anxieties of being constantly on the move that it's also very much about being in a kind of uh, comfort zone, an almost luxurious torture, a place removed from the main action where culture is being denied. Uh, how early do you feel that Zweig became a vanquished soul and how did this shifting notion of personal space and exile cause him to learn about what history held in store for him. I think the real way to, to look at the trajectory of his life is to see him as a vanquished soul in childhood, and I'll say a word about that, at a vanquished soul growing up, and then there's a brief moment where the chains are lifted. And in a sense, he has a taste of what it is to be free, and then they're clamped back down. We're talking Vienna roughly around the age of 20 when he finally gets his first manuscript uh, accepted. Exactly. In, it's it's very important in thinking about Zweig's story, even though he goes back in the world of yesterday and talks about the, the, gold, the, the golden aspect of the world of security, to bear in mind that he felt smothered in his bourgeois home by uh, his parents' over... His parents' envelopment in what he saw as, as material values, um, and their friends even more so, and beyond his own home, most acutely in school, he, his, his, his writing about what school was as he was a kid could not be more filled with rage and a sense that everything they were being taught was useless, was about closing the mind, was smothering. So that what he and his friends, when they took up the arts, they, they held favorite authors, you know, inside their mathematic books, inside inside their book, the books of the literature that they were in some stultifying fashion supposed to be studying. Very much they, like comic books, which Zweig later actually rejected. Exactly. <laughs> which is actually kind of funny. Exactly. <laughs> Talk about cyclical history. <laughs> but but the arts were, were a um, vehicle for freedom. Um, so, you know, the 
the way in which he felt locked in the Vienna of his youth was a driving force to his uh, uh, becoming as immersed as he did in creativity. I mean, it's why when he was in university, he took this essentially a year abroad and went to Berlin, where instead of going to courses, he went to low dives and hung out with drinkers and drug addicts, he yes. says, and gamblers and thieves and all sorts of... Oh, well, he boasts about that in the world of yesterday. He boasts about it, and he says that, in fact, what he liked about the characters that he met is that they were monomaniacs, people who let their desire out full throttle, and that these, he says, and it's true, became his primary... Uh, the, the, the protagonists that we see recurrent again and again were people who just follow their passion all the way, and we have to contrast that to what he knew from this very ossified world in Vienna. But as you said, he, he then, as, an ex- as a very young man, he publishes a book of poems in English, the title of Silver Strings. I may have even been 19. And, and this very first work was embraced by all the important critics. Uh, he writes another. It, the same thing happens. He's not even expecting this. And very early on, he's then writing under the editor's of Theodore Herzl for Vienna's yes. most important newspaper, he starts publishing, and everything he publishes, like he has a Midas touch, is is just is is successful, and this begins to open doors for him, and those doors open and open, then shut with the First World War, and then of course we know he, because of his fame at that point, manages to experience something that was already he knew. Uh, a, a cultural rarity, something some more more than rare, something very very fragile in the post war, post first world war yes. period. He gets he gets the freedom again, and then it starts shutting down already by the end of the twenties. Sometime. I'm glad you brought up his acceptance by Theodore Herzl because I wanted to actually talk about that. Um, he has this tremendous tremendous confidence once Herzl accepts his manuscript, as he describes in the world of yesterday. Yet, as you point out, in 1904, only a few years later, Zweig is increasingly occupied by travel obligations, and Herzl approves of Zweig's travel plans because he believes that this is a ripe opportunity to spread Zionism all over Europe. Um, Herzl dies, and uh, Zweig sees all these Jews who attend his funeral, and it, it just seems to me that even in his early days, Zweig is almost courting exile, uh, especially in his relation to Jewish identity, why why did he have this difficult time uh, kind of establishing this later? I'm curious. Establishing his... Establishing his own kind of notion of what it was to be Jewish, how he belonged, and his this whole Zionism thing that he had going on with Herzl. Right. Well, let's let's go back sure. um, to, to, to Herzl, the beginning of his relationship with Herzl, because it's, it's important and I think hasn't been looked at enough, the degree to which Herzl really anointed yes. Zweig as, as one of the principal Bright young, young men. Exactly. No, that's exactly the right term. And actually he saw, he, 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 Herzl says in so many words that some, at one point that Vienna has no reason to fear, Austria has no reason to fear for the future because of young men like Stefan Zweig. He, he, he not only, Herzl not only nurtured Zweig as a writer, but he began bringing him around to different sorts of versioning Zion, Zionist meetings, they being held in basements and coffee houses around Vienna, yeah. and, he, and he clearly tries to get Zweig to engage with this in a, in, a, in a significant way. Now, one of the things that Zweig says made him hold back that's very interesting in terms of what we began with, thinking about Zweig's aversion to conflict fundamentally, is Zweig was 
horrified by the way Herzl himself was treated by these other young Zionists. Yes. He felt that he was attacked. You know, on the one hand, he would be attacked by the by the forces left over from old Orthodoxy, who were you know who viewed him as not sufficiently religious. He to was say attacked. Nothing of Karl Kraus. <laughs> to say nothing of Karl Kraus, who mocked who mocked Herzl brutally, yeah. um, seeing him as the king of the Jews, almost in a, you know in you know, lots of anti stereotypically anti-Semitic ways, very problematic. And there's a lot of work that's been done on Karl Kraus that complicates any easy read of the ways that his writings um, definitely adopt anti-Semitic stances as, yeah. you know, it's viewing them as rhetorical positions with specific uses. But there's no way also when you just read the words on the page, sometimes they're, they're outrageously fierce. Um, and, 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 and caricaturing of, of, of Jewish, of Jewish character in, in line with real anti-Semites. Yes. Um, so, Zweig, Zweig watched the melee of these meetings and was appalled because of the ways that he believed in Herzl, believed in the gravity with which he was trying to promulgate this radical theory in the face of so much opposition from all sides. It bothered him then to see that even the people who should have been his advocates were as hostile as they were. But there was another thing that you were, that you were gesturing towards, speaking of Zweig's travel. Zweig... It, Early on, became known among his friends as the Flying Dutchman. He was so he was so um, peripatetic, <laughs> <laughs> peripatetic, and euphoric about what travel meant in terms of not just exposure to other cultures, but ways of reflecting back on himself and enlarging in, in, enlarging himself and what he felt travel could do for anyone who could afford it. He resisted the idea that what Herzl ultimately was going to do was to create a nation state that he didn't see how it was going to escape the traps of nationalism that he saw already in the early years of the 20th century as catastrophic for the survival of civilization. He was in, he has an extremely interesting um, exchange with, with, with Buber, yeah. where they, where Buber is talking about why Zionism is an essential, is an, is an essential um, cause for Jews to support at this point. And Zweig keeps saying, I, you know, I think that our role is, is much more a role of, of promulgating cosmopolitanism. And he was absolutely of the, of the faith that the Jew, the Jewish the Jewish nobility was tied into Jewish dissemination within different cultures, critically not assimilation. And I want to s separate um, him in that way from Karl Kraus, who explicitly says, I mean, I, I, I believe the line is, and this could be slightly off, but through assimilation to salvation. Yeah. And, and Zweig was more about through dispersal to salvation. He didn't ever renounce his Judaism, which is important to bear in mind because in part, in Vienna had the Austria, I believe... Austria as a whole, and certainly Vienna, had the highest rate of conversion in Europe. It was 30%. Yeah. In fact, some scholars have looked on that and seen that as a kind of suicide wave of identity because it was such a dramatic step. Even if easily done in literal terms, it had such profound implications of renunciation of everything that your family had been, etc. So it was a huge temptation for people in Zweig's position who would thereby, through conversion, have so much more access, but he didn't do it. And his family, I believe, was more religiously, had been more religiously identified more recently than people generally think of when they think of Zweig. But he resists the program that Herzl is putting forward out of a political conviction 
and does so in a despairing way because he knows that he doesn't have something better to offer. The moment that you referred to where the um, where Herzl dies and there's this funeral yeah. is an absolutely, uh, this funeral in Vienna Central Cemetery is an absolutely haunting scene that I think Zweig, Zweig describes in, in, in ways, it's, it's just harrowing, even more than haunting to read because he describes Jews coming from all over the world and reading this, I started to feel we're, we, are, we are here seeing Zweig writing a, a, an almost biblical scene of the ingathering of the Jews such as was supposed to have taken place in Jerusalem, but it's taking place in a cemetery and a cemetery in Vienna and it's around the person who saw presciently that, that Jewish life in Europe was... Uh, under extreme peril very early on. But he's also seeing during this time the idea of community bound by death, which is also quite interesting in light of his regrettable uh, suicide. I, I, that's interesting. No, that's <laughs> right. And I think, you know, we can't underestimate the number of times that suicide as a motif appears in yeah. his fiction. And of course, I mean, you know, in Vienna, Vienna with its addiction to spectacle, there's, this is, it happens as, it manifests as much through funerals as anything else. There's this notion of the happy corpse, which is deep in, in Vienna's Catholicism, but deep also in some sensibility of the city. You know, death, there is a certain kind of death worship, death obsession. It's not just Feig's writing that have so many suicides. It's, you know, we see it in Schnitzler. Yes. You know, we see it again and again in the, in the great Viennese authors. When Zweig came to New York, he became incredibly reclusive. He was vexed by all these endless immigrants who were beseeching him for his help. Uh, he was discomfited at that pen gathering. Yet in the world of yesterday, we see Zweig, as we had mentioned earlier, bragging about how much he cultivated the riffraff. Here's one line from that, just so our listeners understand. Uh, this particular liking for or curiosity about people living on the edge of danger has, incidentally, stayed with me all my life. Even at times when more discrimination would have been seemly, my friends used to point out that I seem to like mingling with amoral and unreliable people whose company might be compromised. So what changed within Zweig? How did this reluctance to embrace the riffraff occur so drastically? Right. Well, I, as somewhere in the book, I, I, I say that as I look on Zweig as an extrovert who liked to fantasize about himself as an introvert. Um, you know, I don't think in New York it's right to say that he had a reluctance to embrace the riffraff because he had a reluctance to embrace anyone. I yeah. mean, it was a non-discriminatory, non-discriminating reluctance. And he was besieged by mobs when he became he was famous, besieged. just to be clear, yeah. Right, he, the, the, that being the main point. Um, he, was, he was besieged for assistance by people who had occupied all sorts of different walks of life in, in Europe, who were now refugees in the city, who knew that he had connections, who knew that he might be able to bring, bring them jobs, work, and money. And critically, Zweig was always very, very generous. But he, by, by the time of, of the ascendancy of, of Nazism and the start of the emigration, even from Germany in, in the early 30s, already the pulls on him begin to change his, his capacity to enjoy his sociable self, you know. But it's, it's a complicated thing because although New York was particularly difficult for him in this regard. He 
one of the problems that he faced in his exile is he no, nor could he actually reconcile himself to isolation i mean this we can talk about later or now but sure. this was the problem also for him in petropolis you know where he on the one hand he'd been craving for exactly the, the sort of existence that he set up there, a monastic life where he could read and write, and he describes very poignantly these walks that he and his second wife Lotta would take through the through the through the really the jungles that that surround yeah. where they were where they were based in that tiny hamlet, which is about an hour an hour and change up in the mountains above Rio de Janeiro, a very beautiful place, a very still place, and a place that in fact had uh, an interesting. Um, refugee population as well, uh, not not uncultivated. So Zweig, so he'd achieved what he'd been grousing about, not having, ever since things begin to go to hell in Europe. But then there are just these terribly moving um, moments in his letters where, you know, he talks about himself and Lotte sitting on the steps of their bungalow, waiting all day for the post, post you know, the post delivery, hoping they're going to get letters from some of their friends. He's lonely, and and he and and we we know how much company he needed because of we can look at his letters compared to Lotta's letters. And there's there's one moment that I'm particularly struck by in the correspondence, where Zweig is writing to Lotta's family. You know, we see absolutely no one. You know, we're here. You know, you get this people. Of you get an image of two people marooned in the middle of an actual jungle. Or at least that's the image they wanted to present to, in their correspondence. Well, it's the image he wanted to present. But yeah. Lotta, you know, within two or three days of the letter that Zweig has written, writes to her family and talks about how they've seen one prominent, there's a prominent Chilean poetess who went on, Gabriela Mistral, who went on to win the Nobel Prize, and they've seen this French, this this French intellectual, and they, they were seeing people, but he was used to such a density. And I think the jag he got from that intensity of social of, of social contact, Zweig, having been someone who loved serving as a connector between people, loved and was very, very good at it, made surprising connections, helped yeah. people that one wouldn't have known. I recently saw, just to mention this one thing, that he actually, at, at one point, had Zweig reached out to Adorno to try to get him to write a book on Schoenberg. So we think huh. of Zweig in this real populist level, but it's not always the case. He helped, I wrote about this amazing moment also, where he tried to help uh, uh, Canetti, yeah. you know, which which went... It was a mixed bag because Kennedy was so snobby to him. But Zweig actually tried to help him get a very difficult novel published. Yeah. Well, do you think it's safe to say that his grasp on romanticism uh, waned as he was not able to help people surrounding him? That that there's a connection here? I mean, you know, when did when did that ability to to help people? It seems like it went south from New York onwards uh, with within Zweig. But what what is the when did he stop uh, helping people and get caught in this kind of uh, morose, banging out the world of yesterday at an incredible rate? Right. Uh, when, when did this occur? It began earlier. I mean, it began. Yeah. It began when he was in London, starting which 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 started in 1934. That's the year that yeah. he left that he left Austria immediately after uh, the 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 brief but very important civil war that that took place in. Uh, in Austria in February of 1934. And he, Zweig left immediately after, in connection with that, he goes into a preemptive sure. exile. And right away, he sets himself up at a cafe where his table becomes a gathering place for refugees. And he is a source of information and, and more material help than that. And at first, at the very beginning, you sense that he wanted this and he wanted to play this role. But Early on, he's writing letters where essentially saying, this is too much for me. I yeah. can't do this. And the people who are coming over 
at least by 35, he's saying they really left it too late. People, these are obviously at this point German refugees. Yeah. But you know, there's also a, there there are these successive waves because there there is. Um, is it too much responsibility, or is it like an inner guilt of being late on the draw here? It's exactly both. And I think that we see this beautifully articulated by Zweig himself in the preface to Beware of Pity, yeah. which which sets up a taxonomy of two types of pity. That's how the book is introduced. He says there's there's the kind of pity that people manifest principally to get rid of the person beseeching them. Oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Here's some money. Get out of my way. And then he says, but there's another kind of pity. Yeah. And this other kind of pity is the kind of pity that the, the person uh, in, embodying that empathetic position stands next to the object, the subject of, of their compassion, to the end and beyond, he writes, a sort of uh, to the point of their own destruction, engulfment in whatever force is bringing down the person they're taking pity on. And Zweig makes clear that he didn't know how to pity to the right extent. So he felt guilty that he, he felt, I think he felt that every case presenting itself demanded the whole of his self, and he gave and gave, and it couldn't be enough. And he also, you know, he did want to keep writing, you know, and I think, and I feel sympathy for yeah. that. I mean, he, he didn't want to give himself over completely to disaster. It seems to me that you were insinuating that Zweig in London was both Hoffmiller and Edith at the same time. Really and then, well and then basically beware of pity is a way for him to bifurcate all these incredible tormented emotions that he had at the time. <laughs> I think that's really well put. And that and then that book has a political frame, yeah. you know, of course, which can slip right by you because it's only in these opening scenes that we, you know, the opening the opening sections of that set set the when the narration is taking place in that classic Zweig manner of a of a of a person with a lot to say next to a relatively quiet uh, narrator authorial figure and it's happening in 1938 you know it's happening in the year of the Anschluss yeah. and and although the story pushes further back in time much further back yeah. it is an extremely conscious yes. and and an important choice that he sets it at the moment when all of the world is going up in smoke that that he's describing. I wanted to actually uh, go back to Zweig coming into New York because there's this extraordinary moment. It's in the world of yesterday, and you also reproduce it in your book, where he goes up to this hotel receptionist and demands to know where Walt Whitman's grave is. And the receptionist essentially just doesn't know who Whitman is, and Zweig is very disappointed by this. Um, you know, in the world of yesterday, Zweig describes Whitman as the personification of America. He says that uh, it's the land of the new rhythm and the coming world brotherhood. Is it safe to say that Whitman was really the only real connecting cultural thread that Zweig had to America? Could Zweig have found more courage to confront some of the tormented exilehood uh, and what was happening in Europe if he had just been more flexible with the notions of what America is and what culture is? Great question. Um, Un, un, undoubtedly, the, Whitman was his pole star here. You know, Whitman, Whitman was Whitman was so important for two reasons. It's not. It's both this idea, which which Feig clings onto as as long as he possibly can, of, that there can be this spiritual brotherhood of all humanity. Also, there there's that aspect of of Whitman, which is projecting this fantastic vision onto a sort of orgasmic. Can you know as as an orgasmic event you know, that there's that this cosmic oneness isn't only about transcending ideological and ethnic differences, but that it's going to culminate in some sort of almost religious, certainly 
it is mystical, mystical idea of, of solidarity. And I and Zweig was attached to this, and we see it. We see it early on in his writing, and it and it and it, and it persists. And his dream of America was of a place where these problems that were already tearing up Europe apart, however much he was focused on them or not, in 1911, when he when he went when he w visited America for the first time, his dream was somehow of that these ethical spiritual values that that Whitman represented could be embraced on the continent. And he was not the only Central European to look to Whitman. And there's a surprising cross-section of people who found in his poetry, within Europe, who found in his poetry some kind of great hope. And Whitman himself was in exile here in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Critically, yes. Um, but yeah, his Zweig's views of America were well. On the one hand, you could say they were too expansive; they were too they were too oceanic to actually be contained within what the <laughs> continent presented at that moment. But you know, he was he was he was very judgmental, exactly as Freud was of what he saw as the extreme materialism of the, of the culture. I mean, Freud Freud talks about the almighty dollar over and over in America, and Freud chronically resisted the the more utopian possibilities of democratic American society as it was actually played out in reality when 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 Freud visited here as well which was just two years before in 1909 two years before Zweig's first visit yeah Zweig, Zweig does not he doesn't give America much of a chance um, and and why he was so um, Prejudiced against it is something that I that I try to think about. I and mean, one one possibility that that I um, that I bring forward is an anxiety on the part of certain Viennese in particular who were doing work. Freud being the other exemplary instance that involved scrambling low and high culture. Uh, they, you know, Freud's talking about dreams and sex and, you know, laugh and jokes and forgetting. And Zweig's also focusing on very Freudian themes in his own work and not trying to write like Hermann Brock or Musel, these extremely dense, difficult texts. I think that they they saw in America the ways that some of this, some of this um, mixing sensationalism with real um, experiments in cultural possibility were had been anticipated there, and I think this may have made them uncomfortable. Oddly enough, I mean, there's a there's a really weird. I mean, something that I think about a lot is um, the fact that Nietzsche was so intensely influenced by Emerson. You know, I mean, it's I think it's one of the very few philosophers, anyway, that Nietzsche acknowledges a huge debt to, and and cites explicitly as a hero. And that way, that then Nietzsche became so important for Freud and in different, but but ultimately correlative ways to to Zweig. And that some of this is Emersonian thought. There's a there's a back and forth between German and New England transcendentalist ideas that that much of which actually starts here, a significant strands of which anyway, in the, in the United States. Yeah. And I think it was confusing and disoriented their attachment to a very classical sense of German Bildung, of, of what enlightenment in this grand tradition of, of German thought meant, which the Jews in particular were attached to because it seemed to offer a ticket out of their ghettoization. Sure. Um, I want to get into Zweig's library. The Nazis have burned his library in 1938, uh, and Zweig is fleeing from England to New York to Brazil. He's shedding a great deal of his library as he goes along. Um, this is a sharp contrast with the way he describes himself as a young man, basically saying, well, we've read everything. If we knew about a reference, we would go to the library in hordes and look it up. I mean, 
how can you just do a 180 like that? It would seem to me that if you are being persecuted, that you would still have something of that. You would still have some ability to reclaim this great passion, or, or was he just too old at this point? Was he just too beaten down at this point? I'm really curious as to why he couldn't uh, attempt to reconstruct his his library, why he was so uh, driven more towards this gloomy acceptance. I mean, he still had music, and he still kept a lot of the, the musical uh, manuscripts, but at the same time, I, I, that's just an extraordinary capitulation, especially when he was so productive in writing during this entire time period up to his suicide in Persopolis. Right. I think everything you said is right. Um, it, there's not one answer to it. But I would go, I'd go slightly back, in, at, least, at least as far as the English exile, sure. when, he was still, when he still had his library yeah. at, at this point in Bath, uh, England, and he still had his manuscript collection and his, and his musical scores. And he was writing in a different way. He was still working on his biographies in particular. Bertold Viratal, the film director, talked about how in the last years when he saw Zweig, which were the uh, early years of exile, how Zweig's activities of collecting, he says, seemed to take on a manic a manic quality. And by collecting, Viratal was referring not only to the literal acquisition of, of these sheets of paper, but the ways that he tried to collect and gather his friends about him. And this would, you know, going in, in Salzburg, even, of course, more so, where he, Zweig lived for 15 years, his 15 most productive years, where he was gathering people on his terrace, and he was gathering archetypal figures in his writing, you know, along with these big biographies that, that in this country we're a little more familiar with, if we're familiar with Zweig at all, the Marie Antoinette and Mary yes. Stuart, he did these series of shorter biographies. You know, he did Master Builders, which yes. was Balzac and Dickens and Dostoevsky and Struggles with the Demon, Holderlein, Kleist, Nietzsche. And also there were the master healers, Mesmer and Mary Baker Eddy, of all people. And Much Freud. of this collected in the Pushkin uh, volume, which I yet now to being, get. Yeah. Now being collected, yeah. re republished by, by Pushkin. So he was, it's, you know, Veritol describes Sag as, it's almost like he's trying to gather to himself this microcosm of Europe, a sort of cabinet of curiosities of European culture, and hold it before it all goes up in smoke. And, and Veritol says that there's actually something that seems to him prescient in what Sag was doing, the, the ways that it became demonic and, and in its own right, Sag's act of collecting. But there's a point. There's no question at which Zweig feels that his mission has has just failed. It's done. He 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 does not think he can reconstitute what he was up to in part. Well, you know, I think of I, I think of this interview that he gave to uh, Joseph Brainin, a, a journalist who went on to cover the Rosenberg case uh, in New York in 1935, where Brainin had been part of a press conference that was hosted by Zweig's publisher at Viking Press, which drove many of the journalists present crazy because Zweig was so evasive. He refused to take a strong stance against the Nazis, in particular that. Um, and Brennan, in fact, went and interviewed him again privately in, in his hotel, in Zweig's hotel, and tried again to corner Zweig and, and, and talked about how initially this also was an experience that was very exasperating. But at a certain point, he, he, Brennan recalls it, or has this experience of feeling that when Zweig is talking about the way the 
European continent has been split up into all of these adversarial states and ideological positions. It's as though he is seeing the person before him being physically dismembered. That Zweig had so over-identified himself with with Europe as an as a as a as a as a as a as a, as a kind of living organism that he could not bear the knowledge that this had been sliced and diced in the ways that it had and that his his projects had 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 failed to to rescue european culture between the wars and it's very important to say that because in 1919 right after the armistice Zweig makes a remark to Romain Roland where he actually says, my aspiration is not to be a literary celebrity, but to be a moral authority. And it's a rather odd phrasing. I mean, what, what does that mean? He also says he's a writer, not a politician. He also says that, that's right. But, you know, this, this opens in lots of different directions. But for it, there were many young people who began looking to Zweig as providing moral guidance. It's true, not political guidance, but guidance particularly about thinking about how they might cultivate a more peaceable continent. And I, and I want to just side note, um, you know, one thing also that Hannah Arendt takes Zweig to task for is Zweig's interest in fame. You know, she talks about, you know, with all of Zweig's historical acumen that he could spend so much time in his memoir speaking about famous people and the great man and that idea. Which but, I don't think is necessarily fair because I don't, I mean... He's just kind of an exuberant guy. I don't. He doesn't really strike me as someone who is kind of a name dropper. It's just he happened to hang out with Joyce and Zurich. You know, it's, who doesn't it's, want to hear yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's not like he's going to stay silent about that. We <laughs> want to know what happened, but he's not doing it in, in a way that, to me at least, is obnoxious. And that's why that review is just so remarkably brutal. But at the same time, the context of the time is important. Right, that she's writing this in '43 when yeah. word of the camps is just coming in, etc. No, but his name and he's dead, <laughs> and he's dead. Yeah, but it, it's not self-aggrandizing. And the other thing, though, is is there's a particular meaning to the idea of the great man at that point in history, and it's brought out, in fact, by Jules Roman, who gives a valedictory lecture on Zweig's 60th birthday. So this is just before Zweig killed himself, but it, but when it wasn't clear that he was going to kill himself, he Zweig turned 60 in November of 1941. He kills himself in February of 1942. And in in this lecture, there are, there are a few remarkable comments being made, and Roman is, is positioning Zweig as a great man of Europe. But he says what you have to remember about the aftermath of the First World War is that monarchies were essentially dead. The governments were seen as blind, confused, impotent, incapable of effectively legislating or reconstructing the world at that point in history. And then there were these figures who were international personalities, critically international, who were all very well-traveled and interested in the different cultural possibilities that humanity presented, who were actively projecting or communicating or seeking a language in which to, to disseminate faith in humanity as a whole, who became, he doesn't say de facto rulers, it didn't go that far, but who suggested the possibility for a different kind of, not political rule, but a degree of intellectual guide, intellectual slash spiritual guidance that, 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 that would have functioned as a shadow government for Europe. So I think Arendt leaves that out because obviously that experiment failed, but it... When Zweig 
mentions all the famous people that he does. It's both because he had exposure to so many of them. But also, he was also not familiar with the camps when he wrote this, just to be clear, too. Oh, no, yeah. absolutely. And I and I think it's a question, you know, how he would have been able to reconcile that with anything, as, as, as well, it remains. Anthea Bell has this lengthy preface dealing with this issue in the University of Nebraska uh, new edition of The World of Yesterday, which is like, whoa, okay, we get it. But, I, but it, is that important, it is a very important question. And, and again, uh, context like this I, causes weird imbrications over what's true nature really was. And we can look at it, you know, 60, 70 years later and say to ourselves, okay, uh, he didn't quite know this. She wasn't considering this. But, you know, at the time, it must have been devastating, not only to, to, uh, to Zweig's reputation, but also, you know, what would could Zweig have written the world of yesterday if he had known about the camps? No, I mean, I think I think he would have, you know, given given he knew he knew already of lots of horrors, and yeah. it was obviously too much for him. I mean, this it you know he t- he talks in one of his last letters, in fact, a, a letter to Franz Werfel. He, he he's he's talking about an air raid that happened on a German city. And he says, you know, I don't understand how people can speak so lightly uh, about buildings falling, you know, when he says every time a building falls, and he means on either side, I collapse with that building, you know, that he, 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 he couldn't validate the destruction of life. He couldn't do it. And that, of course, put him in an impossible position faced with an enemy who was determined on exterminating yeah. uh, exterminating his, his people. He, he couldn't, but he couldn't, and you, he made remarks throughout, throughout those last years that, you know, with all of the horrors being perpetrated by the, the, the Nazi army, he wasn't going to countenance, you know, the, the firebombing of Dresden. That didn't happen in, yeah. his, in his life, but it wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to say that that was all right. Yeah. And, you know, this is obviously something that has come up as an issue more with historians more recently who look back at some of the, some of the bombings from the Allied side and, and, and compel us to understand the loss of civilian life yeah. and, and wonder whether that really accomplished the aim of, destruct, of destroying Hitler. As much as I, I love Zweig, I don't want to entirely let him off the hook. Uh, let's get into the rise of Viennese anti-Semitism. Um, you know, you observe that it didn't raise too much of a red flag because nobody thought that it could ever become this sinister and all-encompassing threat. Uh, both Zweig and Karl Cross didn't take it especially seriously. You quote Cross, it's unjust always to blame Vienna for its faults, since its advantages also deserve blame. We were quoting him earlier, so that's kind of the kind of in the same vein. Why did these nimble-minded coffeehouse veterans underestimate anti-Semitism? And how did this come to torture Zweig in later years? Okay. Um there's another line that I don't think is Krauss. Um, another another quip, which is comes earlier, uh, is earlier than than Krauss's journal, the, the Torch de Fackel, that where he somebody says, you know, anti-Semitism only became a, a serious problem in Vienna when the Jews took it up. That's right. You know, you know the, the the city was a city unbelievably dedicated to mordant wit. And while anti-Semitic remarks were part of the well. Not while anti-Semitic remarks were part of the jokes, were part of the discourse. They, they, you know, there's a famous, there's a famous anecdote that Schnitzler recalls, where there's an uh, um, some sort of parliamentary session, at which uh, somebody gets up and gives a series of unbelievably virulent anti-Semitic 
statements, which happened all the time in, in Parliament. And afterwards, a Jewish legislator who was an intendant, they go out together and have, and have a beer together. I, I mean, I try to make the point that because anti-Semitic rhetoric was so embedded in the kind of perverse Viennese humor, it may have made people less likely to think that it was ever going to take an embodied form. Well, surely they were aware of the Dreyfus Affair. The Dreyfus Affair, which, of course, was the great motivation for, for Herzl. Yes. But, you know, all right, first of all, that's, that's France. I mean, France is not an identical culture. It's not to say that there but were no... They were reading France. They were that's reading right. all over the place. They were reading multiple languages. So, I mean, this is why I'm fascinated by why they didn't see it as more than more than wit. Well, there's also a shift, isn't you know, an important shift in, in, in Austria. We should go back to, really, to the interwar period and that civil war, which I, I remember correctly, transpires over four days. Yeah. But in this, in this event, what happens is there, there, at this point, the, uh, the, the chancellor of Vienna is this guy, Dolphus, or of Austria, excuse me, is, is Dolphus, who is a cleric-fascist ruler. He's, a, he's an arch-Catholic. He's from the provinces. He's not especially anti-Semitic, but, but it's a fascist state. It's trying to ally itself with Mussolini. Everybody knew after the First World War that, that Austria wasn't going to stand alone, so it had to, it had to lean towards Germany or towards Italy. And by, by the early 1930s, there's a very conscious decision that with all of his faults, that Mussolini Lini's a better choice. Dolphus is pushing that way. But there were hardcore right-wing nationalist forces already operating within Austria at that time, many of which were, they were getting instructions from Germany. And Dolphus made this extremely unfortunate calculus at a certain point to appease those groups by going after the very developed, very progressive uh, Austrian social, uh, not the Christian, there's, the, sorry, Dolphus represents the, the Christian socialists, and then there's the social democrats. And the social democrats had been building all of this progressive housing in Vienna, the most successful experiment of its kind in the world. It wasn't only housing, it was cultural opportunities, theater, and there were droves of libraries that were, that were built. Droves is not a very good term for libraries, but there were scores of libraries that were built. And there, were, there was a real effort to not only shelter, but to enfranchise the working class by the socialist parties with, with the, with, within the German-speaking cultural legacy. It was a really inspiring thing. Dolphus, however, goes after the socialist party, allows these essentially right-wing militias to go after them. And hundreds and hundreds of people were killed, many more than that were injured. And what happens is the socialist leadership leaves Austria. And all of the radicals, political radicals, who remained within Austria that I've read statements by say that really this was the end, that once, the social, that once, once socialism was gutted in Austria, there was really nothing to stop Hitler from coming over. And, and Zweig, clearly, he doesn't articulate it that, that way, but that is part of why he leaves in the immediate aftermath. I mean, he's caught up in this because what happens is that in Salzburg, the chief of police goes to search his 
house for guns that would have been used to support the socialist party, the Schutzbund. And Zweig talks about the absurdity of him as one of the most well-known pacifists in Europe with a house, an exposed house on the hill above Salzburg, possibly harboring an, arm, an arms archive. And he says, if they can go looking for an imaginary machine gun in my house, you know, I, I'm out of here, essentially, he says. But... Um, Sorry, I'm, I'm, I've gone into so many different digressions here. I mean, I'm not sure, but I want to I want to stay for a second with why they why they couldn't see the anti-Semitism. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, you know I, I've talked about this with my with my father, who was um, from Austria, and yeah. whose father was uh, a de- decorated war veteran. He had been a surgeon who helped, went into became a prisoner of war early on in Siberia, and and was instrumental in saving. Um, the group of prisoners with him from a cholera epidemic. So he was one of those of whom, of which there were many who were Jewish, who couldn't believe that they had, with all of their service and all of their recognized service to the state, that the state could ever turn against them. I mean, my father's family stayed until they were, they found out through various unexpected ways that they were going to be picked up within 24 hours and yeah. you know so they and, and and they had talked about anti-semitism at home they knew it was not good but but still they couldn't really believe it was going to affect them and i think this is your homeland it's it's absurd that it could actually reach this particular level it's absurd and i think that there really it's a case where there's a kind of tipping point that happens and if you think how we maybe in this culture can grouse and grouse and grouse and you know you get the sense that they were that they were complaining on and on and on and about different aspects aspects of the yeah. government's behavior. And at the and then there's suddenly this moment where it goes into a whole other mode of physical violence. And I think that shift happens very quickly and that there can be a lot of low grumbling that goes on for years where you just don't see that this has entered into a whole other paradigm. And I certainly know that in the case of my father's family and Zweig in a different way, I just think, you know, they, they were heroes in the country and they were adored by, um, they were adored by the German-speaking, not just intelligentsia, but just sort of regular people. And and one one last point, because I think we can think about this in, in relationship to one event that happened more more recently. In, in I'm thinking of Turkey, which is oddly a, yeah. a, a, a country that's obsessed with Stefan Zweig. If you look on Twitter, there are more comments in Turkish than in any other language. <laughs> and language. the Turkish uh, situation in Germany, too, yeah. The Turkish situation in Germany and to do yeah. with the Ottoman Empire, yeah, et cetera. Exactly. But well, even today, you know. Even I mean, today, yeah, yeah. well, even today I was thinking about, you know, sort of the what happens when the countryside, as it were, comes to Istanbul, you know, yeah. in the form of Ankara, et cetera. And, and what you had in Austria was the, the, the countryside had always been much more reactionary. The Catholicism was much more steeped in really ugly anti-Semitic mythology. And the relationship, the moment when that pivots and Dolphus is from the province you know he's from as as was Hitler yeah. you know the moment when that the the the, the weight of culture goes to a, a, a not just conservative but a sort of ferociously mythologizing um, less educated population that's also, I think, that something that's very hard to recognize is going to, you know, I mean, think about in New York. I mean, you know, we have, we live in a certain kind of bubble here in relationship to parts of the country. We, you know, we we find it inconceivable certain viewpoints that are held broadly in certain areas. Yeah. And imagining that those viewpoints would actually dominate in our city, you know, I think that the Viennese confronted something like this. Yeah. 
Um, let's go back to Zweig. Anyone who reads Zweig is going to have a problem with one part of him. But I also attended the McNally Jackson Zweig panel that was moderated by Jason Diamond, uh, and we had a little bit of that on there. Uh, we had um, you know, Andre Osserman. He disses the Eros Machitunanist part of uh, the world of yesterday because he wanted to see how Zweig was getting some action as opposed <laughs> to this... Uh, uh, description of how people were, you know, sexual during that particular, the old times. Um, and similarly, Anke Muhatslin uh, quibbled with Zweig's biographies, especially the Mary Sturt one, because they weren't really biographies in her in her mind. And, and speaking for myself, I have great issues with confusion, <laughs> which, um, you know, I just think it's too much on the nose. Um, but at the same time, you know, Zweig is very much this storytelling mask on everything he does, uh, and yet people seem to find some hole within it, and, and it's never one thing. And I'm wondering why you think this is. Is there something about his romantic style that's guaranteed to turn someone off in some way? <laughs> well, I think I think he's also just hugely varied, and yeah. I think he is hugely uneven. Yeah. I think that this was a problem from the beginning because. Hugely varied, hugely uneven, uneven, and hugely prolific. Yes. So you have this massive work, and I think post in the immediate aftermath of his death, one of the many reasons that that his work went into decline is people didn't really know where to dig in, and yeah. if you dig in at the wrong place, oh yeah, you know, you're going to have problems. Oh, someone is. I mean, with, as you said, you're. I, it's I, impossible. I, on, on Twitter, someone had read the Post Office Girl first. I'm like, no, no, no. You got to read Chess Story first. It yeah, was that whole I, thing. I, I love yeah. Chess Story. I mean, yeah. I like Post Office Girl very much, but there are novellas that I am certainly less attached to. Yeah. And and so he left a difficult legacy. You know, so many of the great Viennese authors. I mean, Roth is a more complicated case because I think really his novels are almost without exception just yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. But, but you know, most most of these figures, when I think of the, the grand paragons of that era, I mean, people like Musil and Brock, I mean, they produced two or three, you know, one, I mean, almost, yeah. I mean, you know. These, they went these, the whole run approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's not very, you know, there, there are these unbelievably distilled works and Zweig was writing all the time we talked a little bit on that on that panel that you referred to on about his fluency and this yes. idea that he was just he just he just he just could write so quickly and so uh, ultimately in such a polished way and I you know I I was speaking with a a, a cultural historian from Germany um, who's an enormously erudite person and who I really expected to take the um, take the tack against Zweig of, of his populism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he took utterly the opposite position and said that he thought Zweig was absolutely brilliant because he, because he operated in, in that perfect liminal space between the masses and between high culture and that he managed to get enough in both. And I certainly uh, myself defend the ways that Zweig is a popularizer. I mean, yes, I think that was a big part of what he did, certainly within the biographies, uh, within these shorter biographies that I spoke of, he brought people's attention to difficult authors. Krauss takes him to task specifically for this and describes him and a German author, Emil Ludwig, who was sim similarly very, very popular as elevators of culture. They sort of spare people the hardship of actually having to read these texts. But on the other hand, if you think about our predicament today, you know, would that we had someone pointing us in some way to lots of more difficult writers who could do it in a voice that communicated to large audiences. Yeah. You know, I think he, he did this very generously and very wonderfully, and he was very self-effacing about his own work. And this is something that I come back to because it was so rare in Vienna, which was the city of such, of such hypertrophied ego. Mm -hmm. And Zweig, about his writing, he did not have this. You know, He was generous, if anything, to a fault. And one of the most 
almost pathetic scenes in, in, in the world of yesterday. It's this moment when he, he talks about the pride he feels being ranked with Thomas Mann and Heinrich Mann and figures like this at the moment that their work is all being burnt. Yeah. You know, that this is the moment when he's taking Solidarity that seriously. Solidarity for conflagration. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a really tragic idea that yeah. he thought, gosh, I'm with the big guys here now, you know? And it's like, as the they're... The big guys um, for the big fires. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, so um, so I don't think we have to love all of Zweig to be able to have an enormously uh, enriching experience by dipping in almost anywhere within his within his body of work. Yeah. You know, you're going to get something. There's some and, – and even where he's at his most conventional, I tend to feel that he, he, he pushes – he pushes – aspects of people's desires a little bit further than we're ready for. And, you know, and, and if there's a nostalgic element in looking back at Zweig at this moment, as there may, you know, we have this moment where there's this little resurgence of interest in him. We'll see what kind of legs it has or doesn't have. But there is this moment. And some people have talked about sort of a nostalgia for Vienna. But critically to me, it's not a nostalgia for Blue Danube Vienna, right? I mean, this Zweig's works, they end in disaster, his novellas. They're difficult stories. They're stories of love ending in suicide they're yeah. not happy it's not a happy form of nostalgia if it is nostalgia and so he's expansive enough to appeal to the tweed crowd and the uh people who like despairing literature <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. yeah okay i i want to close this with the suicide <laughs> why not um that photo of stefan and lotte in the book just utterly paralyzed me and stopped me in my tracks because as you say, Stefan's face is dead and Lotte is just looking at him with this love. And there's this willingness by her to go along with this suicide. Um, and we may never, ever know, we probably will never know her full intentions um, or her full motivations. And yet Lotte's last letters, as you observe, are grimmer than Stefan's. You write that the truly harrowing aspect of the event is not his death, but the fact that he created a situation where his young wife, whom he did deeply love, felt no choice but to accompany him, or perhaps better put, made that decision to follow him. I'd like to frame this with uh, Kate Zambrino and heroines. Uh, she wrote quite provocatively on the subject of uh, writers' wives who follow them. And she points out that Zelda Fitzgerald's descent into madness has never been disputed. So uh, as a way of grappling with a suicide, I want to ask what 21st century methods do we have in disputing Lotte's role as a woman who went along with her husband? When you say disputing, I want to be clear that I understand well, you. Well, disputing the narrative of here is a woman who typed Stefan's manuscripts, who copied it and all that. Okay. And, and okay. Who, I mean, the idea that she actually had... Uh, a richer life than the one that even, you know, in your limited, in, in the limited correspondence that we have, I mean, you know, what alternative picture can we even form of Lotte? Well, certainly, I mean, as you, as you know from the book, one of, I have a real interest in reclaiming yes. her as a, as a, as a multidimensional character. She, one of the, you know, Stefan Zweig's first wife, got a bum deal in yeah. certain ways. There's no question. You know, she, who he was friendly with, by the way. Who he remained friendly yeah. with, who he wrote one of his last letters to in a, in a quite loving letter. Um, and he remained involved with her as, as, as a close friend and, and confidant um, up until the moment when he left uh, Ossining. But one thing that Friedrich, Friedrika, his first wife, did that I find unforgivable is after this, the, 
the double suicide. She completely controlled the narrative, really, about who Lotta was, and she she makes Lotta out to be, a, you know, a simple-minded, sickly, um, utterly pliant creature. And I was fortunate early on to come to know slightly the stepniece of Lotta, who's still alive today, and an extraordinary woman who is now in her 80s, who lives in London, and who lived with the Sveigs for a time in Bath, and then the Sveigs served as kind of de facto guardians for her when, when she was evacuated to the United States, and they at that time were in Ossining. This This woman was at that time in a school very near Ossining. And her memories of Lotta, who, to whom she'd been very, very close, were so different, presented a, 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 a picture of a woman, Lotta, intelligent, and, you know, she had asthma, but she was not, she didn't lie in bed for weeks on end, you know, she 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 was not weak, she had humor, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they went to Petropolis to try to actually uh, get her asthma in a better That was part of yeah, it, that's one correct. Of the, one of the deals. That's, that's correct. So that made me want to probe further into her story, and there are now more and more of her letters are becoming available, and you can, you can read all just about all of them. In fact, in oddly, one of the odd Zweig stories, posthumous Zweig stories, is that his a huge part of his archive ended up in Fredonia, New York, at SUNY Fredonia. It's like out of a Marx Brothers film. <laughs> exactly, I was about to say. It's such a it's such Talk a strange about duck soup there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange story, and there and it's bothered a lot of people, particularly in in Salzburg, <laughs> or feel that the letters should be there, and you know it's a difficult to get to place. They're I still a, in Fredonia. They're still in Fredonia, oh, which okay. is you know this about, is going to be an interesting international dispute. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know I I have real I have real sympathy for that the, the university's efforts to make that um, collection a, a, a galvanizing point that would draw people to the, to the university when it was when it when it began to be created in the 1950s. It didn't really work, and at this point, the German literature department I don't know to what extent it even exists. It's it's like German literature departments across the country. It's certainly in in dire straits. But 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 in any case, the more we read of Lotta, the more we recognize that she is something more and has to be recognized as playing a much more active role in Stefan Zweig's final writings. This is also validated. One of, one of the last things he was working on was um, a biography of Balzac that he worked on off and on throughout yeah. his life, and he was trying to finish it at the end. And the the man who became uh, an executor for, for Stefan Zweig's estate, Richard Friedenthal, talks about looking at the... Who, and he got this, the manuscript version of the Balzac. He talks about seeing evidence in the notes on the text that clearly showed Lotta was doing more than just humbly dictating. You know, she was reigning. He, he, he talks about how there were moments when you could see Zweig was trying to sing an aria and, and, and Lotta makes the language cooler and, 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 and more precise. So what happened, you know, the, the, the counter-narrative, I think, first of, first of all, she's so young. Yeah. You know, she's 27 years, 33, excuse me, it's 27 years younger, she's 33 years old. She had been dragged around the world by Stefan Zweig at this point. For so they'd been on the run in some way, you know, since since I mean, really the beginning of their relationship, which was and in the first year of his exile. Um, the, at least that's when we know their intimacy uh, started. At this point, Zweig was still married to Friedrika. Critically, also, I want to just say that it was not the first affair, and that this does not. This seemed part of their marriage was not uh, monogamous, uh, at least on Zweig's part, and this was something that had been part of the deal for you know for better or worse, and what they had. 
So Lada can't be faulted with breaking up the marriage and, you know, as the affair that just trashes. It was, it was Zweig had had it with the, with the marriage for lots and lots of reasons. But I think that by the time Lotta was with him in Petropolis, she was, the, the sense of the kind of Herculean effort, first of all, that it would have required for her to return you know, it's, it was difficult to travel in, in February of 1942. Yeah. It, you know, for her to get all the way back to Europe, you know, I think, I think that this must have been a crushing... She was in exile, too. She was in exile, and I, and I think it must have felt very hard to get back to England. But I also think... I, I, I try to limit my speculations on what happened. We know that she killed herself after Stefan. And... There are lots of questions surrounding that final moment. Isn't there, it like uh, it's a couple of hours? Or, or what? Yeah, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I forget exactly what the forensic ev- evidence indicated, and there was, there, 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 you know, there but were. There, there was time for her to deliberate. There was time for her to this. deliberate, yeah. and she may not, it did, you know, she may, you know, what Stefan said to her, what she said to Stefan about what was going to happen in the wake of the suicide, we don't know. You know, we don't know. We know that Lotta did write certain letters that were clearly indicative that she was about to do this to her family in particular. Um, but we we don't know what was in her head. But I am certain, based on everything that I feel, having spent as long with her words as I have and read, reading her, the letters around her, about her, that she did, at least I want to grant her the dignity of having made a choice and not sort of blindly following her her husband, you know, it wasn't that. I mean, she loved this person, and they were talking about it for quite a while. They were clearly talking about it, and I and I also think it's important to point out that it was clearly it was it was um, it was a subject of conversation for a long time, but it wasn't a final decision until right at the end. Yeah. I mean, when he's he, he kills himself immediately after Carnival, and on the way drive he he and Lotta go to Carnival in Rio. Um, they go down what's supposed to be a several-day trip. And on the way into Rio, he was talking with the uh, journalist friend, writer, re- another refugee who, who was taking them there. He was talking about another writing project he was involved with for Reader's Digest. He, was, he clearly hadn't finalized it. And something happens, and they, they don't spend as long in Rio as they're supposed to. They turn back, and they go back to Petropolis. There were many specific events. The fall of Singapore is often pointed to as something that Sveig saw in the morning newspaper on the day he returned to um, Petropolis and, and, and read this news with despair. I think it did give him his sense that the conflict was globally engulfing and, and globally dark, was certainly um, was certainly intensified by the knowledge of what had happened in Asia. If he had more manuscripts to complete, maybe this might not have happened because he was able to fit, get a lot of work done right beforehand. But there were things left, you yeah. know, the things not quite finished. I, I, I you know, he, why... I also want to say that when I say his death is not as harrowing, it's because by the time you're reading those last the last months of his letters, it's clear that the weight had gone on the side of suicide for him. You know that that his sense of his he was too old to start life again. He says this over and over. I'm 60. I can't begin again. I know it's going to stop, but I not for me. Yeah. My, so many friends of his had died. He'd lost so much. Lotta is another matter, but I at least want to say that whatever we whatever we don't know, let's let's give her, let's. Res- Let's let's honor her memory enough to not impose upon it the sense that 
you know, Friedrika, for example, did, that she was, she was just, what we would say today, enabling. I don't think it was like that. I think it was more, an ina- she was not just a codependent, enabling person. She was person. a factotum, you know? She was not, you know, she was, she was very smart. I mean, she's, you know, she spoke, she, she, her English was much better than Sfai. She spoke multiple languages. Um, and, and, you know, she had a strong character. And, and uh, you know, as absolutely horrific as, as her death is, and, 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 and less inevitable than Zweig's, I believe she had to do it, you know. I believe she had to do it, and whether it was her overweening love for Stefan Zweig, that she, that she, in not a pliant way, but in a volitional way, wanted to be true to her vows, um, or whether it was a despair uh, about the larger world situation or some combination, uh, thereof, it it it's an act that we I I would never uh, try to judge, and and nor would I try to belittle, by simply making her Stefan's shadow. You're saying then that historical realities of the time almost justified her suicide and his suicide. I'm saying that we're not in a position to, to I, I don't believe we're in a position to cast, cast judgment on, on because, of, because of the darkness of that moment. That's correct. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, legitimize, it, we can't, you know, suicide, it's such an, ex, it's such, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a final, it's, it's such, there's such finitude. It's <laughs> definitely a final act. It's yeah. a fun, it's, it's, and, and, it, and, it, and it speaks of finitude in every way yeah. in terms of relationship to this world and, 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 and the sense of impossibility of continuing to live. But the kind of, the kind of sorrow or the kind of anguish that, that people are in when they commit suicide is, is something that it is upon us maybe to, 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 to feel more sensitive to the extremity of circumstances in which they were existing rather than to to castigate or condescend to them as, as, as can happen in, in a case like Lada did happen and was the way she was looked upon for many years after her death. That's a tone of empathy for an extraordinarily dark human act that I think we can close on. <laughs> George, thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Oh, it was thank great, you. Great it was, talking. It was, it was really, really nice speaking with you as well. Cool. Thanks. There's no saving anything now we're swallowing the shine of the sun There's no saving anything How we swallow the sun But I won't be no runaway Cause I won't run Thank you.